This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Coming up, bodies have been piling up outside of PNG's largest hospital, but authorities say they don't have the funds to find a solution. Eventually become unclaimed by relatives for whatever reason, and uh, they end up accumulating and and causing this uh, strain on the very limited capacity we have at the moment. In Tonga, a bittersweet Christmas for homeless evacuees from last year's eruption and tsunami. They've finally been rehomed, but not on their island of Atata, destroyed in the blast. Today I'm staying in my new home. We feel free to come to our new home. And an informal market for betel nut has opened up between Solomon Islands and Australia, and it's put some exporters in some hairy situations. Sniff a dog, gonna check everyone here. When the dog came up to me, the dog just sniffed my pocket and then see that, right? <laughs> First, though, three years since the COVID-19 pandemic began, China is finally lifting its international travel restrictions. It means Chinese tourists could return to the Pacific very soon. And for some countries, that's exciting news, though it does pose some health concerns. Marianne Farr with this report. A Pacific getaway like no other. That's what Kiribati is marketing to one of the world's most significant tourist populations. What we offer to the Chinese traveller is really an alternative to mainstream travel into other Pacific Island destinations. Three years since the global pandemic was first declared, China is finally set to relax its international travel restrictions. From the 8th of January, Chinese citizens will be able to book holidays overseas without having to quarantine in a hotel when they return home. Petero Manifalao, CEO of the Tourism Authority of Kiribati, wants his country to be their destination of choice. The opportunity to experience a whole different world where culture and community is really at the heart of, uh, of who we are as a destination. For him, it's been a long wait. Kiribati secured official Chinese government approval as a tourist destination in 2019, just before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. What it means for us as a destination is that, you know, we're on a recommended list of destinations for Chinese travellers. So that in itself is, is a welcome accolade. But the country hasn't seen the fruits of that recognition just yet. The borders closing in 2020, we have not really seen or benefited from that recognition. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to when China does open its outbound travel market for us to explore the opportunities uh, out from there. Chinese tourism is highly lucrative, with the country's overseas visitors spending a massive $127 billion on travel in 2019. When tourism resumes, Kiribati will have to compete with other Pacific countries also looking for a slice of that pie. When you look at China, it's been consistently a a good market for Fiji. Brent Hill is the CEO of Tourism Fiji. He says prior to the pandemic, China was the fifth largest market for the country. China was a really strong market. They travelled at different times of the year, which was great. And they also spent, um, you know, the spend per tourist from, from China was really good as well. So... Yeah, certainly from our perspective, it's it's one that we've been looking forward to welcoming back again. It's also good news for students and teachers like Setope Soa Emalalagi, who teaches Samoan language at the Beijing Foreign Studies University in China. 
it's been very challenging for myself personally because when I left China, it was just on the eve of the, the outbreak of COVID. He went home to New Zealand for a holiday in 2019 and hasn't been able to return to China since then. The news that China is opening up come January 8th, absolutely exciting. <laughs> I, I can't wait to get back to, to Beijing. For him, it means being able to continue important work. I'm teaching Samoan language. It's the first time in Chinese history, in their 5,000-year history, that they're learning Samoan language. And so it's really opened up the eyes of, of students in China to what the Pacific is. But around the globe, there are some concerns about the return of Chinese international travel. The global superpower is experiencing its biggest COVID-19 wave yet, and that has prompted some countries to place restrictions on Chinese visitors. Australia, the UK and the US all require people travelling from China to return a negative COVID-19 test before departure. The Chinese government has opposed these restrictions, saying medical experts have deemed them unnecessary. Fiji tourism boss Brent Hill says so far the Fijian government hasn't imposed any additional restrictions on Chinese visitors. That's a developing sort of situation now that you know, most countries are looking at that and, and assessing that. So we'll, from a tourism industry perspective, be really guided by the Ministry of Health. It's a similar situation in Kiribati, according to tourism authority boss Petero Manafalao. At the moment, there is nothing from our Ministry of Health and Medical Services other than what has been the norm since the 1st of August when we opened, and that's double vaccination and, and the opportunity to test within three days of arrival. He says that situation could change, but for now, he has one important message for travellers. Well, certainly make ensure that you're testing negative before you arrive into, into Kiribati. You know, we're a small uh, remote island destination, quite vulnerable. First and foremost is us seeking travellers to take the utmost responsibility in, in, in ensuring that they are protected prior to visiting uh, Kiribati. Kiribati Tourism Authority CEO Petero Manufalao ending that report from Marion Farr with additional reporting by Mackenzie Smith. Meanwhile, disturbing images have been coming out of Papua New Guinea this week of decaying bodies wrapped in cloth piling up outside the country's largest hospital. It's due to the morgue filling up, and authorities say families leaving the bodies of their relatives unclaimed in the hospital are to blame. The issue came to light in a viral video on social media that showed some of the bodies in a makeshift storage shed with flies buzzing around. But speaking to reporter Belinda Cora, the acting CEO of Port Moresby's General Hospital, Connie Sobi, said it was nothing new. More than half of these bodies that are admitted to the morgue, uh, deaths that are occurring in the community, in the population that is within the city and uh, in the close neighbouring fringes of the city. You know, some of these bodies eventually become unclaimed by relatives for whatever reason, and uh, they end up accumulating and, and causing this uh, strain on the very limited capacity we have at the morgue. Remember, the morgue was built in 1990 for a capacity of 64. But at the moment, we have about 300 bodies in our morgue system. Over the years, we've been able, we were heading, you know, one container and so forth. But in the last 12 months, we've actually added Two more 20-foot containers, uh, refrigerated containers, to increase the capacity. But the population of the city has also expanded. 
and that is putting a huge pressure. And then when we have the proportion of unclaimed bodies that are accumulating for months, it just puts more pressure on the uh, capacity we have at the moment. This isn't the first mass burial that the hospital has had to process and also carry out. When do you think something can be done to ensure the morgue is given the attention it needs at this time? Yeah, so, I mean, the immediate actions that what we've been doing over the last few years uh, to do a timely mass burial, especially for the unclaimed, because unless we we can claim everybody, you know, every every relative can claim their deceased loved ones, uh, I don't think we will come to the stage where we are inundated with um, bodies and the capacity we have for the bodies. Putting on additional container, which we are planning to put in, this will be our sixth container if we put it in the next one month. We, we just need to continue to uh, do maybe three or four mass burials every year in that way we, where we aim to ensure that there is one container that is uh, always on standby so that if one breaks down, we can move bodies from the broken down container to the one that's always uh, on standby in that way we don't have um, bodies that are piling up in the layout room and causing all these um, media attraction, social media attraction and so forth. Doctor, are you able to tell us how much do families in the city and also outside of Port Moresby pay to keep their loved ones at the hospital for a day? Um, is this part of the reason why families are finding it difficult to again return for their loved ones? Or are there other factors that you may be able to tell us more about? Yeah, so if you look at the unclaimed bodies, I mean the bodies that have been there for months, we do put out uh, advertisements on our daily post Korea or national for relatives of the deceased ones to come and pick up the bodies of their deceased loved ones. There are some, there are a few that come and pick up after the advertisement goes out in the, in the papers. But there's still a lot, majority, roughly if we put out, say, you know, maybe a hundred, hundred names of hundred deceased persons in the morgue, We'll have about 20 coming forward and saying, okay, listen, one of that body is ours. We are going to come and take the body away. So you see, still up to 80% of them will be unclaimed. Uh, and these are the ones that have been there. So we put out the advertisement. We, we give people like three months, and then after that, we, we put the notice out. So the bodies would have been there already for three months or more. And then we put out the notices. So if they don't come after the two weeks grace period, we then get the warrants of burial from the coroner. So the reasons, you know, it could be cost to get the bodies from, you know, they could be from remote parts of the country, you know, uh, and, and it's just too costly to, for the relatives to repatriate the bodies. Dr. Connie Sobi is speaking there with Belinda Cora. It's been almost a year since a devastating tsunami struck Tonga, destroying homes, businesses and farms. For those on one of the worst affected islands, Atata, the 12 months have been spent living with family or in crisis accommodation on the mainland. But for some, including Atata resident Elsiva Tuivai, a new chapter began on Christmas Day when she moved into a home on the mainland built by the government. Remembering the day when the tsunami hit, she told the ABC's Marion Farr that she had left her daughter and mother at home and went to work in the garden. And when I get to the plantation, I hear the, a poem or something like that. And I start to cry. I know that uh, something happened. 
and I ran back from the plantation to the village to see my mom. And when I get to the village, the seawater is covered over the, the island in all the house and the things gone. And was your house destroyed? I saw my house still um, stand. And when I come to get my mom, my house is the window and everything broken. And my mom still in the house with my daughter. And my daughter just carried my mom up to, to breathe because my house is all over the water. When my daughter ran to get to the highland, seawater just take my uh, daughter to the sea and I don't know where my daughter is. And when I get to the highland with my mom and I'll come back to see my my daughter, where my daughter. And when I come in south in the beach, I can't find her. My brother come again and see where my daughter. And he know my daughter was on the beach. And my brother carried my daughter to the highland. Now, everyone from Atata was relocated to the mainland, Tongatapu, after the tsunami. Many people have been living with families or in crisis accommodation since then. What has that been like for you? I think it's very difficult for me because when we live in uh, Atata, that's very um, good thing. Like, But when we come to Tonga, it's very, very different. It's hard for me because uh, we have to spend money for the power and spend money for the water and the food and everything like that. But when we in, in Atata, everything free, yeah, it's very different. Now, you and a number of families from Atata have just recently been relocated into new homes built by the Tongan government. Now, these homes are on the Tongan mainland in a new village called Atata. Yes, today I'm staying in my new home. We feel free to come to our new home, but um, we're not the same with Atata. We come here, we, we have to uh, spend money for the power. So why did you have to relocate permanently to the mainland? Couldn't you go back to Atata Island? It's very hard to go back to Atata because it's easy for the like a hurricane and the tsunami to come because it's very low now. Yeah, that's why we never go back home to Atata. And what's your new home in the mainland like? Have you settled in? That's good. Our new home is very nice, our new home. But we have to, like, uh, grow our own food and something like that. I just grow a little um, food in my my home, beside my home. I just grow some taro and breadfruit tree, banana and something like that. So we start, we start to grow something for our, for my family. I try to uh, find my job, but it's very hard because we living from far away from town. 
and we have to go by our own car or something like that, or we have to go by bus or something like that. We can have money to spend for the fees. It's very hard. Are you happy with what the government has provided? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy because they give us our land in the house. I'm happy for that. That was Tongan mother Elsiva Tuivai speaking there with Marion Farr. Now let's head to Fiji, where the government has said it will address a brain drain taking hold of the country as a result of foreign labour schemes, including Australia's. Linda Tambuya, the new Minister for Women, Children and Poverty Alleviation, says it will be part of a range of policies the government is looking at, but first reflected on her thoughts being the only female in Fiji's new cabinet. It is a disappointing outcome. Uh, you know, it. Uh, I wish that we had had more women. Uh, that was with me in cabinet. We've got three assistant ministers uh, who are women, uh, myself being the only woman in cabinet. Uh, it is of great concern, and I, I will continue to, you know, try to find uh, young women leaders or women leaders that will come into uh, politics and engage for 2026. Uh, I believe it's been the very nature of of the uh, election environment in Fiji that has uh, deterred many women from participating in elections. The the culture of fear. Um, and bullying and intimidation. But, you know, that doesn't deter me as uh, the only woman cabinet member to really try to push for the uh, increased visibility of women in leadership positions. But more importantly for our work here at the ministry is uh, the need to increase uh, women in the areas of uh, economic empowerment. You know, if uh, if we're looking at uh, the current uh, drain of our brain, so to speak. Uh, we've got quite a lot of tradespeople and uh, and the like that are leaving on our, you know, um, coming to Australia. Ski. In fact, coming, coming to, to Australia. Australia. Yes, it is a huge concern for us. You know, we've got uh, it's almost twelve thousand now, I believe, that have come over, and we are not just uh, we are losing a lot of our tradespeople and professionals in that regard. So I would like to see uh, um, an increased participation of women to be trained here in the in the uh, the trade uh, space. Uh, I will be appealing to the Australia Pacific Training Coalition, the APTC, because they do offer courses on uh, built environment, which is carpentry and plumbing and tiling, as well as engineering. I'd like to see more women to be, you know, uh, participate in that and to be trained so that they can replace the brain drain that we've suffered. Uh, I feel that, you know, women will have more commitment to stay in the country do you, and do to you give think... back here because they're looking after their families and they're committed and have more roots here. Do, do you think, Minister Tambuya, sorry to interrupt you, uh, do you think there should be a review of Australia's labour scheme? I mean, we've heard that nurses from Fiji, uh, predominantly um, women who are in those jobs, are leaving their jobs to come to Australia. Do you think that scheme should be under review? I believe in the scheme. I think we should be able to give our people the opportunity. However, we as a country do need to see how we can replace and like we can fill that void. We do have an imbalance uh, generally of uh, having a lot of um, expatriates that are taking up the jobs in Fiji and we are losing our people to, you know, to uh, overseas. So we need to address that imbalance. You know, if we are able to fill the positions here of uh, by our own people and if people are leaving to go on that uh 
that uh, scheme, then we as a country need to, and as a government, need to see to fill those positions, to train our people and incent them to stay. Linda Tambuya, Fiji's new Minister for Women, Children and Poverty Alleviation. And now a new market has emerged, supplying thousands of Solomon Islands seasonal workers in Australia with a taste of home. Betel nut may be an acquired taste, but demand is rising, and it's seeing suppliers freeze, pack and send the fruits to buyers overseas. Chris and Rita Amanu-Leong in Haniara with this report. Honiara's western end is a trading hub of small roadside stalls with more than 50 betel nut sellers impatiently waiting for the daily supply of betel nut to arrive. Regina Guayna is out here most mornings, heat, rain or cold, in search of her supply of fruits to sell locally and overseas. She's been supplying betel nut to Australia for more than a year. Getting the right kind of betel nut is difficult work. We have to wait at the wharves, the coastlines or at the betel nut markets. When we buy the betel nuts, we remove the skin and we wrap it in a plastic wrap before putting it in the aluminium foil and into the freezer. Miss Guayna says frozen fruits can be stored up to a month but the mustard leaf is hand-picked on flight day. Australia's biosecurity law allows any passenger to carry 2 kilograms of mustard leaf and 10 kilograms of betel nut. Solomon Islander James Mayokolengi travels to Australia frequently, but he still feels uneasy carrying betel nuts after a terrifying experience nearly ended with a huge fine. Before we call it the luggage and everything, they, the security came through and like just lined us up. It's like, all right, we're going to do um, a sniffer dog, going to check everyone here. And then, yeah, the dog just came through, sniffed the bags, walk around everyone. And then when the dog came up to me, the dog just sniffed my pocket and then sit down straight. <laughs> and everyone's like looking at me. I was like, oh, no, something. But I, I have no idea what's in my pocket. Lengi left Honiara Airport chewing his betel nut but forgot the skin in his pocket until a biosecurity officer removed it. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, you know you're not allowed to bring this. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't. I know you're not allowed to, but I didn't mean to bring it. I was planning to clean my teeth with the bitter nut skin. He was later issued a warning letter, but now travels freely with his supply of bitter nuts. As Solomon Islands biosecurity officer says, they are seeing an increase in the amount of betel nut taken from Honiara to Australia. All of it happening at an informal level. Emile de Liberata is a seasonal worker and spends up to $200 a week on betel nut. She insists it's a better option than fast food. No, I would rather spend $50 for betel nut than KFC. (laughs) I will do it, yes. Uh, so there's, uh, it's like a pack, and there's like three betel nuts, three fruits, I mean, betel nuts inside, and two leaves. So it's $10 for a betel nut, a $10 Australian. You compare that back home, maybe what, almost $60, Solomon? It's expensive, but we can't say it. When there's betel nut, we don't even think about the price. Betel nut is popular among his Solomon colleagues who have found themselves forking out extra money for postal fees. And there's heaps of suppliers, but 
it, it depends on which kind of place you go work to and where you live. Like if the, bidon, the supply is closer, then you'd get bidon nuts. Sometimes we live far away, people post it over to us or my friends, and then we, like we have to pay the bidon nut and the posting as well. Bitter nut suppliers in Honiara might be meeting the demand in Australia. But James Mayokoleni says there is a more convenient solution for those in Australia. I live in Darwin uh, more than 10 years now. In Darwin, there's bitter nut trees everywhere. So I usually buy bitter nut from a lady from PNG and the husband, and also there's an old couple from East Timor. That's James Mayoko-Lengi speaking there to our reporter, Chris and Rita Amanu-Leong in Honiara. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Thanks so much for listening. And do join us again the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.